0: And as I looked out into the blockchain landscape, it became very clear to me that a lot of the protocols that were out there, in fact, almost all of them, I would have never selected any of them. I would never have used any of them. I wouldn't have used blockchain technology because there wasn't a platform or a protocol that would meet the needs that I had as a stakeholder. And so we went ahead and built that protocol. That's what Casper is. You know, Casper Labs built a product that we as, SaaS or web two engineers would actually use in a web two product, in a technology solution, in a company.
1: Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before it happened, is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I wanna share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you'll hear from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before-it-happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Anyone who follows the tech world closely knows that it's an industry of buzzwords. It seems like every couple of months there's a new word or acronym that creeps up on us almost overnight. One day it doesn't exist, the next day it's all anyone is talking about. Usually these buzzwords come and go, but sometimes they stick. And when that happens, it's usually because they represent some kind of groundbreaking, world-changing technology. 10 years ago, it was the cloud. Then it was AI and machine learning. One of the biggest buzzwords of the last couple of years has been blockchain. Like most buzzwords, blockchain started as something only a handful of innovators understood. But in 2021, it has reached a critical mass and is considered one of the pillars of what experts call Web 3.0. So what is blockchain technology? A simple way to describe it would be that it's a way of recording data that is nearly impossible to hack or manipulate. It's a system designed to ensure trust and information. But I'm going to let my guest today do the heavy lifting and explain it better than I ever could. Meta Parlakar is the co-founder and CTO of Casper Labs, the developer of a new open source blockchain and smart contracting platform that is changing the way companies do business. Meta was one of those people, just like me, who went from never hearing about blockchain to being unable to escape it. And now she's on the leading edge of the entire movement. Meta was born in Western India, but immigrated to North America with her family when she was four years old. Her parents were both structural engineers, and her father found work in Canada, eventually settling down in Windsor, Ontario.
0: It was really interesting growing up in a small Canadian town in the early 70s and 80s. We were very grounded in our culture, but we didn't really have a huge community. There really weren't that many Indians back then. When you look back, I was more of an anomaly than the norm in terms of my social construct, if you would. So my parents were very connected to the Indian community, mostly in the Detroit area. And that's really where I found my grounding and where I found my place of belonging, because I really didn't feel like I belonged in my school setting, if you would, because, you know, the color of my skin kind of made me a bit of an outlier, an outsider. So Very, very traditional upbringing and very grounded in the culture, the festivities and the food. My mom was an excellent cook and we really primarily ate Indian food. Didn't even know how to use chopsticks when I met my husband and I was, you know, 22 at the time. So very traditional upbringing indeed.
1: And what did your parents do for a living?
0: My father was a structural, civil structural engineer. He had his own business. My mother actually was the first woman that graduated from Karad Engineering College. It's a small town in India. And she's the first woman that ever graduated from that school. And she was also a civil engineer. And she actually could not work in Canada after she got married because they would tell her that they didn't have restrooms in the buildings where she was offered a job. They said, ma'am, we would love to hire you. We just don't even have facilities for you to work. And shortly after that, she got pregnant with me and then my father, and she decided that she would just stay home. And she went back to school to become an RN after my brother was born. So my brother was about three or four years of age when my mother went back to nursing. And so that was really what, you know, kind of gave us the basis by which we were able to immigrate to the United States was my mom got her H-1B visa through the nursing shortages that were happening across the border in Detroit.
1: Both your parents are really educated. How did that help you navigate through school?
0: So there was always a very deep focus on education. My parents made sure that I had very strong fundamentals in mathematics. My father made sure I had a strong fundamental, even in computer science. He made sure that I learned everything about technology back then. He had a computer and he put me in front of the computer when I was 10, 11, 12. And I started writing code back then, working with my dad when he was building software applications to kind of accelerate the productivity of his business. And made sure I had a PC on my desktop when I was in high school, so very, very strong focus on education. And my father was really a self-made man. He pulled his entire family out of poverty, and he did so purely out of his own determination and grit. So that's something that really has shaped me: is that I'm extremely gritty in that way. Uh, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I actually double down on it and make you know I become more insistent that I'm going to get it done. So definitely had a huge impact in that, you know, traditionally very focused on education and accenting that education, even with home study. And how old
1: were you when you got interested in computers?
0: The first time I started working with computers, my father, he had written, this was way back at MS-DOS 1.0. This is 1981, 82. And he had a series of bash scripts that he needed authoring. And so he had written a bunch of them and he had me testing them and finding the bugs, and I had to learn the syntax of Bash scripting in Microsoft DOS 1.0 way back when. So that's basically what he taught me. And we were building, you know, we had a North Star computer. It had its own closet because the boards were eight and a half by 11 in size. And, you know, we had maybe 512K of storage. So I learned early on about how precious storage was, both in memory and on disk. And yeah, so I learned what the architecture of computers were and how they worked, very, very early on. And it was, you know, a couple of summers where I was just in the basement, just working with him in the business, learning how to optimize these scripts that he had written for the purposes of getting certain tasks done in the office.
1: I mean, that's pretty extraordinary because if we think about the 80s, what was happening, just to frame it. People, you couldn't go down and buy a computer. And radio sh- stores like Tandy, Radio Shack existed for small, you know, component things. And then there are specialty stores where you could buy certain things. but Where did you get your parts? Because it's a common theme we've had with other guests that literally are scrapping and putting things together by just being really creative. So how did you and your father assemble this computer? Like what, what was available to you?
0: He actually purchased it. It was a North Star model. He purchased it in 1978. So by the time I was even working with it, it was pretty old. And he would actually source the materials. My dad had the whole thing set up even when I was a young kid, so... He had made sure I was working with the tech very early on, and I didn't really understand why I so deeply understood computer science principles. It took me a long time to kind of connect the dots and figure out that, okay, I've been working with it like a a full decade before anybody else even started thinking about computers.
1: So were you building this computer at home with your father, were you at school, what were your favorite passions and classes? Was it math and science or...
0: Yeah, definitely mathematics. I was always a real mathematics buff. I attended some competitions in mathematics and engineering in the small town where I was, made the newspapers a couple of times. I also did speech and I, you know, I went to the city finals for speech and, you know, I loved the Rubik's Cube back then and my speech was on the Rubik's Cube and that got me into the city finals for public speaking. I was 12, 13 at the time and I played a musical instrument as well. That was also a core requirement. So I was part of band. And I, you know, was pretty athletic. I used to really enjoy ice skating. Of course, you can't be Canadian without playing hockey. So I used to play street hockey and roller hockey. Uh, those are big things that I love to do and ride my bike. I used to be outside a lot, hang out with the kids on the block. So yeah, just typical childhood from that perspective. Let's go back to the Rubik's Cube because still to this day,
1: <laughs> it's one of those things that if you can still find them in the cool section of the toys where they have, you know, the eight balls and the Etch-a-Sketch and those types of things, right? You did a, a speech on the Rubik's Cube. What was the topic? And did you have to demonstrate, you know, actually doing it faster than lightning or what was the?
0: Yeah, so I actually, the topic was about the details about the Rubik's Cube, how it was invented, how it was manufactured, and just it was very informational about the Rubik's Cube. And yes, I actually solved the Rubik's Cube while I gave the speech. So I was actually, it was about a three minute speech and in about two and a half minutes, I was solving the Rubik's Cube while I was speaking. So I was doing both of those things at the same time. So in the 80s, I read there was
1: only 14% of women went into computer science and tech. And now the number is 28%. And the, the numbers in computer science specifically have gone down only because a lot of other STEM careers automatically integrate computer science, right? So you were a trailblazer, really. So when you go from high school to college, how did you select your college? And then what did you decide to study?
0: Uh, So this is a really, really funny story. I actually found out about this pretty late in life. There was my parents had a big disagreement about what I should do. A traditional Indian family, right? So the backdrop is a very traditional Indian family. There is not really sovereignty for, you know, youth to kind of select their career. And so my mother really wanted me to go into medical school and my father really wanted me to go into engineering. And my dad lost the fight. And so my my mother encouraged me to go into pre-med, which I did. I went and got my bachelor's in biology. I went to University of Western Ontario. But while I was at school, I had a PC on my desktop, right? So the PC never really went away. And so that thread kind of remained uh, of technology. It was always present. It was always there. It was only after college that I decided I didn't want to go into medicine, And I kind of, for lack of a better word, you know, kind of took the slow, windy path to my career, if you would. And I relocated to San Diego and then got a job and then grew into the IT department at that job and then actually came back to software engineering and to computer programming formally when I went back to get, you know, trained in that discipline.
1: What was that first job that you took in San Diego?
0: The first job I took in San Diego was at a construction company, believe it or not. And it was a contracts administrator and the IT guy that would come in there, they were laying Novell 3.1 networks. This was the time of dial up, AOL online was a thing. And it was like the dawn of the internet, this is 1995. And they were upgrading their computer systems in the company and he looked at me and he goes, kid, you know, you have a real talent for these things. And I hadn't even connected the dots that I was actually a technologist in the making because I hadn't realized why I understood so much about computers work. They were just very natural to me. They were just, they'd always been there. It wasn't a novelty. And so, you know, when Windows 3.1 came out, I helped the company make the full IT transition. I helped lay the networking cable. I learned everything about the Novell 3.1 networks. And then, of course, then the internet and the wide area network that was the internet, you know, came up and I started getting involved in that. And so it was after that that I went back in and formally became a computer engineer, became a software engineer, and then fully shifted my focus into software engineering.
1: That was your master's degree?
0: It wasn't a master's degree. Believe it or not, it was a trade school. I went to a trade school in two years. At that point, I'd been married already, and I needed to get trained really, really quickly. So didn't really go in for my master's. My husband was already going for his master's degree, so we couldn't really, you know, finagle both of us getting our master's. So I went back to a trade school.
1: So now you're in this construction company. Did you have all the interaction that you had with your father in building this computer, you know, which is basically your own IT team at home? Did you pull from that into this new role, this professional role now?
0: I definitely did. Like I excelled, you know, when I learned about software engineering and, and programming, I definitely excelled at school, right? So always been a great student. Uh, I excelled. That was not an issue at all. Had strong fundamentals. And then after like, I worked at the construction company while I was going to school, but then halfway through actually I pivoted and to went to work for a software company. So I went to work for a software company as a customer support representative. And it was a company, Jostin's Learning. They're now Compass Learning, and I believe they're still in business. They provide educational software for K through 12. And I went to go start in support. And then I pivoted upon graduation. I went to go work in their engineering department. And so I started actually doing maintenance work on their code base. And I did that work for about a year, year and a half. I did a bunch of integration engineering work, and then I pivoted into quality control and quality assurance because I didn't love code construction. I didn't really love the process of writing code. I didn't enjoy the politics of that environment, but I did really enjoy testing. I enjoyed, I felt I was very good at it. But like there was a particular technical lead that I was working with that I didn't really like working with him, right? He was kind of like he lobbed the ball. You know, he kind of threw a problem at me and then expected me to just figure it out. And I didn't really get a lot of support or onboarding. And so I didn't really enjoy that. Now, whether I should have stayed with it or not, indeterminate. But I had an opportunity to go work in quality control. So I went ahead and took that. And that company actually left Jost and and I went to go work for mp3.com. And mp3.com, is around the dot-com boom, 1999. And mp3.com was doing some really incredible, incredible stuff around Web2. They had Web2 technology way, way before Web2 was even a thing. They had cloud technology before cloud was even a thing. And so you know, working for them. I quickly became a leader in their quality assurance department. I, you know, had a team of 30 people. My leadership skills are rapidly recognized there. It was just a really fantastic transition for me. And I still had the opportunity to be very technical, but I was able to contribute in a way where I could create the kind of environment where I really wanted to work.
1: Yeah, at MP3, I mean, that was a hot company. That was when the whole World Wide web was just coming into shape and we were still figuring out that whole frontier was another frontier I wanted to talk to Meta about, but it was more of a personal one. In her 30s, Meta began studying martial arts and eventually became a black belt. Today, she says, it's become an essential tool for her in managing both her life and her career. So what was that real drive to martial arts?
0: So, gosh, I refer to my martial arts training as one of my defining moments in my midlife crises, for lack of a better term. I started martial arts when I was 37, and it was around the age of 33, 34 that I enrolled my daughter in martial arts at the age of four. She was five. I'm sorry, my daughter was five. And I enrolled her in martial arts because I wanted to make sure she had a really strong core of confidence and she could always defend and take care of herself. And I knew I wanted her in a sport. And so she joined the dojo in 2001. And after that, our family went through an extremely difficult period because my second daughter became very ill in 2003. And between 2003 and 2006, I spent a lot of time caring for my children and, you know, rehabilitating my daughter. I also gave birth to my son. And it was during that time that I felt like I lost myself. I stopped taking care of myself or stopped doing things for myself because my focus was really around on everybody else in my life. And Deciding to go back and get my black belt was really more about, this is something that I've always wanted to do. I always wanted to, I felt like I had a jack of a lot of trades, but I hadn't really mastered anything for myself or given myself that gift of time and something that was really not for anybody else but me. This was only about me. And yeah, at the age of 37, I stepped on the mat and I decided that. By the time I became 40, that I would get my black belt in that style of karate. And so I didn't hit it by my 40th birthday, but it was before my 41st birthday that I did, you know, complete the examination for my black belt. And it was one of those things where I just really, you know, I dedicated myself to that and I did it for me.
1: What did you discover about yourself and how did you apply the learning and the teachings of karate? How do you apply that discipline into your career now and your daily life?
0: So what it taught me was to always be in a state of change. I, was, I, I always embraced change. Like I always embraced in trying to become the best person I could possibly be. But it taught me how to be focused and grounded and to be in the present moment. Because if you're thinking about anything else, when you're sparring somebody, you're going to get sucker punched. So there really isn't any room for distractions. It really focused on the, you know, got me focused on the present moment. And it taught me how to compartmentalize right? So even if I brought in all kinds of troubles, you know, at the end of the day onto the mat, I left everything on the mat. And when I left, I was clean and clear and it really helped me get clarity, kind of break out of my shell and really find my own power and achieve something that really was 100% mine, right? Like this was something that nobody could do for me. And I think that's incredibly transformational and empowering for a woman, particularly if you're, you know, working in a technology space, being able to have your own power and feel grounded in that, I think was one of the really big, big uh, barriers to success that I had struggled with. You know, my childhood was a traditional Indian household and women traditionally are not very empowered in those environments. And furthermore... You know, children of Indian parents are also not empowered, right? Our culture very much is like, you don't ask, you do what you're told. And that just really doesn't work when you're working in a, you know, a a technology company as a female leader.
1: So as you're going through your career, it sounds like you were pulling a lot of secret skills and things that you had in your foundation growing up as a child. And then that continued as your career has evolved and into the karate tribe as well, which is pretty powerful.
0: And so about this time, you decided to take a break from your career? So I actually took about a five-year hiatus from 2001 to 2006.
1: Very rare for women to be able to take five years off and then bounce back, (laughs) right? It's really hard, but that's very impressive. So let's talk about blockchain. What was the first time that you heard the term blockchain?
0: First time I heard about blockchain was mid-2017. A friend of mine was working with an open source blockchain project and approached me to manage that team because that was something that I was very good at, is driving teams to ship, building teams, managing product. And that was around the time of the ICO boom. Blockchain was hot. And before that, I had not heard about it at all. I had some vague recollection of Bitcoin, but didn't really get pulled into the rabbit hole the first time that I heard about Bitcoin. So blockchain, the way I like to describe blockchain is it is a trust protocol that sits on top of the internet information protocol. So if we think about the internet as an information protocol, you go to the internet, you go to your web browser, you want to get some information. If that information also passes through a blockchain protocol, you can trust that information that it's not been changed or mutated from the first time it's been published. That's how I see blockchain. I see blockchain as a trust protocol. On top of that trust protocol, you can have cryptocurrency, which use the underlying blockchain technology. So you can have some guarantees around who owns what cryptocurrency and how much they own, or you can get some guarantees around the total supply of the cryptocurrency, right? So Bitcoin is 21 million Bitcoin. And because it's a blockchain, you can trust that that number isn't going to ever change. And because of those properties or certain properties, Bitcoin has been deemed to be very valuable. For me, blockchain technology is all about trust.
1: And you can have blockchain without crypto, but you can't have crypto without blockchain. Can you explain that?
0: Absolutely. Crypto is an application of blockchain. So I say all the time that you can have blockchain that has absolutely nothing to do with cryptocurrency, but you cannot have a cryptocurrency without having a blockchain to secure it. And what that means is, is that, The cryptocurrency uses the blockchain technology to keep track of how much cryptocurrency there is, who owns what cryptocurrency, who transferred what amount of cryptocurrency from person A to person B or account A to account B. And that immutable or unchangeable ledger is what makes cryptocurrency possible.
1: So tell me about the evolution of Casper Labs. You ultimately co-founded Casper Labs. How did that happen?
0: So as I said, my friend that approached me to manage this team, he wanted me to run this crypto project for him. And at the time, fortunately, I wasn't doing anything. So I said, he was a good friend of mine. I said, absolutely, let's go ahead and do this. This could be fun. And that project, you know, in that project, I was functioning as a role of program manager, right? So I really wasn't, I wasn't a co-founder of that project. I wasn't the CTO, I was a program manager. But still, I was, the, you know, one of the faces of the project. You know, the developers, I was managing the developers, I was kind of leading and defining the releases. And so it was a very visible position. That project, unfortunately, you know, had a series of financial and administrative problems such that funding of the project became untenable. And so when that happened, there was a consortium of investors that had invested in that project that had, you know, lost their investment, but still believed in what the project was trying to do. And so they approached me to co-found Casper Labs so that they could recollateralize the project and actually deliver on the concept, right? On the idea of, you know, building Ethereum 3.0 or building a scaling solution that would eventually, you know, be a layer one protocol with a specific set of technology principles. And they wanted me to lead that vision and build that team and and kind of be the technology, you know, visionary for that product. And, And that's when Casper Labs was formed.
1: And what did you want to achieve with Casper Labs that you didn't see in the market?
0: So for me, I wanted to build technology that I would use, right? So I dug into my own experience as a decision maker or product manager, program manager, or engineering director. And when I'm selecting a tool, right, to integrate into my product, because for many years, I was responsible for building and testing real applications that customers were going to use. And every time I had to select a technology or a platform or a product or a service provider, in the back of my mind, I had certain core things that I know it needed to do. And as I looked out into the blockchain landscape, it became very clear to me that a lot of the protocols that were out there, in fact, almost all of them, I would have never selected any of them. I would never have used any of them. I wouldn't have used blockchain technology because there wasn't a platform or a protocol that would meet the needs that I had as a stakeholder. And so we went ahead and built that protocol. That's what Casper is. You know, Casper Labs built a product that we as SaaS or Web2 engineers would actually use in a Web2 product, in a technology solution, in a company.
1: So let's take a, an application. There's many applications I've seen, and we can pick one from stock certificates to human resources to like all these paper troll things that have happened. Can you pick one and kind of walk us through what that looks like compared in that trust cycle versus the traditional way?
0: Absolutely. The one I think that's the most compelling and powerful that I like to talk about is clinical trial data and pharmaceuticals, right? So when you bring a drug to market, then you are collecting all of your clinical trial data. Something that a lot of people may not be aware of is the clinical trial data has to go through two layers of audit to ensure its authenticity and accuracy. And the time required for these audits is literally double of the time for the collection of the base data. So imagine if you wrote all of this clinical trial data directly to an immutable ledger, right? So you have guarantees that That history couldn't be revised or rewritten because of the blockchain infrastructure. You could theoretically, not even theoretically, practically, clear your audits of your data in a fraction of the time, right? Which means you can bring drugs to market that much faster, right? In a third of the time, arguably, because, you know, if you have one year of collection, you've got two years of auditing for the clinical data alone. And that's really, really important if you think about it. One, it's massive efficiency for pharmaceutical companies wanting to bring a drug to market. Two, that you can bring transparency and a greater layer of trust, right, around the clinical trial data itself. So there's no way to, you know, mutate that data once it's been written to the blockchain. You can't change it. So you can't hide any disparaging results. And all of that data can be made anonymously public to the consumers. And that goes a really long way in building trust that could have a massive, massive implication to society around, you know, how the study was conducted, what any of the side effects were, what each of the participants experienced, and you don't have to audit it, right, because it's tamper-proof. And I think that blockchain is very well-suited to really help transition us into a new era of trust, right, of transparency and trust.
1: I read about public versus private protocols. Can you break that down? Like, if you don't use blockchain, if you don't apply it going into 2022, what's the high risk of not doing? I mean, should I use public? Should I use private? What does the business need to do?
0: So there are different deployments you can use with blockchain, right? So private blockchain is a blockchain that is completely controlled by a single entity, right? So a blockchain is just a collection of servers. Right. If you think of a client server architecture or you think of, you know, somebody running a system inside a data center, that's a server, you have five or six servers and they all communicate via blockchain technology and they generate a ledger. Right. The Casper protocol is one such blockchain technology. If you control all of the servers, you theoretically you control the blockchain, what we call a centralized, single entity controlled blockchain. You can still get an immutable ledger, but the level of trust is significantly lower because programmatically, because you control all of the servers in the system, theoretically, you could absolutely control the blockchain itself, right? So you could programmatically rewrite entries into that ledger if you wanted to do so. Now, a public protocol is one where the individual servers are controlled by different people right? That's what you see with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And in the public Casper protocol, you see the exact same thing. There's a hundred participants in the public network today. They all run the same version of the Casper protocol, but because they don't know who each other are, they don't trust each other. So there isn't anybody that's controlling the output of the ledger besides the software itself. And so this is where public blockchain comes in, to the table with a very high degree of trust. The software is what generates the ledger, not the individuals running the software. And that is really the big differentiator between your bank account statement at your bank versus an account statement on Bitcoin, Ethereum or Casper, right? Those protocols, the software generates the statement based on the transactions that you send, whereas in the former, the bank is generating the statement based on the transactions you send and you have no choice but to trust what the bank says.
1: Yeah, and I think of my own personal experiences have been, you know, scammed and fished, and have money removed from my bank accounts so Only need to have to contact the bank directly because they didn't even catch it in error, right? So blockchain can help eliminate, when you say to trust, do you find that more and more banks will be migrating to using blockchain as a means to protect their IP and protect their customer assets as well?
0: I certainly hope so. You know, almost every bank and financial institution, I gander is exploring blockchain technology for a myriad of reasons, The not the least of which is to uplift their systems, right? If you know anything about financial infrastructure today, it is very, very old and archaic. Some of the financial infrastructure still operates on COBOL, and uh, the old IBM mainframes, the very old, the green screen mainframes, right, are what are powering a lot of these financial systems today, which is actually super scary if you think about it because they've not done any kind of upgrades. So they are way, way, way overdue for uh, an infrastructure overhaul. And I'm quite certain that they are definitely looking at blockchain as a means to streamline operations, clear audits faster, reduce operational overhead as well as providing new and exciting instruments and products for their customers.
1: So what would your wisdom be for any say fortune, you know, 1000 company that hasn't migrated to blockchain yet?
0: So number 1 I would say it's not a scary technology, it's totally obtainable. It can be absolutely safe for your company to use. You don't have to go all in at once. You can start small, get comfortable with the technology, and work through it slowly. We here at Casper Labs are here to walk this journey with you as experts in the field and as a a development partner. We've structured the company in a manner to help enterprises walk the path. And I think the final thing I would say to them is blockchain technology is here to stay. And it's only a matter of time before consumers will start demanding those newer and better experience and greater trust and transparency and better products.
1: Why do you think it took so long to get to this blockchain era? Do you think there were other building blocks of things that you've seen in your career that had to happen before we could get to the blockchain era?
0: I do. Absolutely. And I think even with the blockchain era that we're in today, I think we're still very, very early on. In my experience at mp3.com, we saw the digital music revolution. We absolutely had a vision for iTunes. We absolutely had a vision for the streaming of music content over Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. The silicon wasn't ready for us, right? The bandwidth was not there. And I believe that, you know, blockchain today is still very, very early stages. I believe we're going to see massive improvements in silicon technology and bandwidth technology and greater accessibility of optic networks and optical fiber. That's going to make blockchain much, much more scalable and much, much more accessible in our day-to-day operations so that we can have greater trust and decentralization in our, everything that we interact with in our life. And is that at a global level? I do think it's at a global level. I don't believe we'll see one blockchain that's going to rule them all. I think we will see the emergence of an ecosystem of purpose-built blockchains, blockchains that specialize in a specific type of service or problem that they're solving. And I think we'll see many, many of them. I do believe that we need to have like public cryptocurrencies as an alternative to government-run cryptocurrencies. I think we'll see a lot of you know, sovereign coins emerge in the marketplace. It's a very natural thing. I think a lot of governments are exploring this technology already, and it's only a matter of time before it's, you know, ubiquitous and wildly available.
1: So I'm seeing more and more crypto accepted here signs. If you look at the next 10 years, where do you think blockchain and crypto will be?
0: I definitely see it becoming a lot more ubiquitous in terms of the benefits that blockchain brings, right? So I think that wallet technology is going to be pivotal. I think wallet technology is going to be the killer app for blockchain, just as the browser was the killer app for the internet. I see some really fantastic wallet technologies that are emerging that make the management of public-private key infrastructure very easy for the end user. I think that's going to be super, super important, right? So I'm excited about some of the wallet technologies that are emerging. And I see blockchain technology being a lot more ubiquitous in the future, absolutely. I see self-sovereign identity where I don't have all of my personal identifiable information You know, spread across all of these providers, be it the DMV and, you know, my person that owns my mortgage or my banks. I see all of that personally identifiable information being held by myself, right? I control it and I grant access to those agencies as and when they need it only.
1: Yeah, no longer do
0: you need to have a safe deposit box.
1: In a lot of ways, it is a bit of a safe deposit box, right? The blockchain with the trust. Is like, you know, exactly where it is and the progression of all the interaction.
0: Yeah, cryptographically secured. That's right. Do you
1: you feel that everybody needs a uh, black belt in blockchain to know what to do next?
0: My goal would be is that it is not required, right? Uh, My goal is that the user experiences that will emerge and the tooling that will emerge will make it very easy for the consumer to interact with blockchain. I'm hearing more and reading more about
1: music artists as well as fine artists fashion designers using blockchain as well. Is that something you think that will be more commonplace?
0: I absolutely think so. Particularly if you think about, like, I'm familiar with the music royalty problem. The music royalty problem is a thorny, thorny issue, right? So I think it's only a matter of time before we start seeing all the digital content creators, both for movies, TV shows, and music, to use blockchain technology simply because the division of royalties is Such a mess, right? Like every single name that scrolls on the credits gets something, and they all have unique contracts. And, you know, they receive a check and they have no idea if that check is accurate. They have no visibility, no transparency. They don't get any auditing or any reporting on the amount of revenue that that piece of content generated or if it's an amalgamation of multiple pieces of content. So it's absolutely coming. And I think that, you know, they are going to start demanding it as content creators and i think the younger generation
1: is absolutely they're already dialed into it's something that their parents aren't using it's like tiktok it's like snapchat right i think crypto is being embraced and adopted at a really rapid rate by millennials and younger right but for businesses to adopt blockchain to me is just given a competitive advantage to be able to operational efficiency as you said the trust component but also for company evaluations i would think that businesses could have a higher evaluation if they factor in blockchain.
0: Definitely, yes. So if you want to start connecting with that millennial audience, right, you need to start exploring blockchain technology so you don't lose sight of what your customer wants, right? And there's going to be new and innovative products that will come to market you'll get to a place where if you're gonna do KYC on a millennial, they're not going to want to share their personal identifiable information, right? They're gonna see that as like, oh my gosh, this is like so archaic and stupid, why am I doing it this way, right? You're going to see them using more wallet technology on their phones, right? Like millennials use Venmo a lot, right? It's not like they're using checks or even cash, right? Almost all of their transactions between each other, they're using Venmo. And there's gonna be more and more applications from new startups that will seek to provide brand new features and functionality that the incumbents will simply have to adopt too, right? So like I said, blockchain technology is here to stay. It's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. And the space is very unique in that there is a lot of venture capital that is flowing in now but really, a lot of these early projects are purely funded just from the community, right, through the entire ICO boom. And even though there's a lot of jurisdictions where ICOs were banned, there's still a significant number of countries that are being very opportunistic and providing havens for blockchain technology. And there's legitimate projects that are popping up, right, that will become disruptors in the space.
1: Now that you've been in blockchain and you're in the thick of it, right, do you think this is like everything that you've done up to this point prepared you to be in this role as CTO?
0: Absolutely. I feel like, you know, the culmination of all of my years of experience, both personal and professional, has really led me to this point to be the CTO of Casper Labs and to work with companies on their use case because I have such a myriad of experience. Like even my very first job, working in a construction company that I understand the preliminary lien notice process and the construction contracting process. Like I understand that process. I understand web analytics. I understand content delivery systems. I understand financial and FinTech and compliance. And all of these companies that I've worked in, I worked in about a dozen companies through my career, I can sit in the offices of a CIO and I can have a very crisp conversation with them and how blockchain can integrate into their existing application stack and create new and exciting products and value propositions for them. And I'm super excited about blockchain technology and I think it's just got such potential for society as a whole.
1: That was Metaparlikar, the blockchain expert with a black belt, who's schooling the rest of us on the impact blockchain can have. For example, one of Casper Labs' biggest recent wins was landing a deal with a company called Metacast, the world's first NFT marketplace for whiskey cask investments. The connection between whiskey and blockchain may not be an obvious one, but before blockchain, it was nearly impossible to verify the age and ownership history of a rare whiskey cask. But MediCask is now using Casper Labs to build a digital marketplace for investors and collectors to buy and sell whiskey on the blockchain. And if whiskey's not your thing, imagine what blockchain can do in other applications such as human resources, stock certificates, college records, and medical exams, even tracing COVID-19 vaccines. Blockchain is no longer a buzzword. It's here to stay. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with StudioPod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.